Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Has Pope Francis committed a grave act of mortal sin, sacrilege, blasphemy, heresy, etc.? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. We're going to get into that. There was a scandalous event that took place in Rome with Pope Francis and a fake priest from a heretical sect called the Anglican Church, a man who masquerades as a bishop. He's nothing more than a guy who dresses up like a bishop and has no sacerdotal, which is to say priestly power, because the bishops of the Anglican Church are just basically having a costume party because it's not a real church. Um, in any event, uh, Pope Francis, we'll just pull up the image here, received a faux blessing from a faux bishop, which is just fun, isn't it? This is a post from um, former Anglican priest, now old Catholic priest. I'm not ascribing to the old Catholic problems. I'm just, he posted it. And he po uh, posted, um, can someone please explain to me what is happening here? Is this unity or heresy? Either A, Anglican orders are now seen as valid in the eyes of Rome, in which case Pope Francis is overriding Apostolica Curiae and undermining Pope Leo XIII. That letter was the one saying that the orders of the Anglicans were invalid. Would that have an impact on papal infallibility? Or B, Pope Francis is receiving a pontifical blessing from someone his church declares to be a heretic. Would that mean Pope Francis is embracing heresy? Is there a more charitable interpretation? Well, there is a more charitable interpretation in the sense of one could sort of just say Pope Francis doesn't know what he's doing, poor old man. You know, what a victim of the press, blah, blah, blah. This is not what it looks like. That's stupid. This is exactly what it looks like. Pope Francis is bowing for a blessing from this uh, fake bishop. Either the bishop asked if he could bless Pope Francis or Pope Francis asked for it. Knowing Pope Francis, he probably asked for it. And if the bishop asked if he could bless him, then you should probably kick that man out of Dodge. What is he doing there in the first place? Well, there are layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of problems before you get to the, the heart of the matter. And that's kind of the problem with the crisis in the churches. Where do you start? Well, you got to start about 100 years back. In any case, is this an act of grave mortal sin? Well, traditional Catholic moral theology would suggest that it is. And by traditional Catholic moral theology, and I'm not, again, mortal sin means intention, you know, grave matter, that sort of thing. So we can't say in cer uh, certainly, but nonetheless, this does fit the bill for something that was long considered a mortal sin in the church, and it's called communicatio in sacris. And we're going to read a little theological treatise on that from a very good traditional Dominican named Father Thomas Crean. Uh, he's a traditional Dominican based in England, very apropos considering we're talking about the Anglican Church here in Pope Francis. We're going to get to that in a moment. But first, I'd like to just let you know that we are only four weeks away from the most amazing, awesomest extravaganda in Catholic manliness history, the second annual Canadian Martyrs Men's Conference, February 17th. Accept the cookies there. Uh, that's just three weeks from now. Tickets are $100 Canadian. If you use Canadian Monopoly money as an American, that's about $72 of your greenbacks. And uh, Father Michel Rion is the keynote speaker. We're reclaiming traditional Catholic manhood. And uh, it's put on by the Holy Name Society. There you see that great group of guys right there. And uh, speakers are Michel Rion, Father Michel Rion, who is the keynote. Father Stannis giving uh, talk as well. Tim Flanders and myself. Uh, and there is a meet-and-greet social sort of thing the night before, after Mass. Day starts with Mass. Food, friends, and fun all day. And it is the Lenten season, so we'll make sure that Friday, well, in general, we'd, we'd make sure Friday was meatless, but we'll surely make sure that the social is meatless. Um, and uh, thank you to all the sponsors who have sponsored this event so far. It's going to be a great day. Click the link in the description area, the show notes for this podcast. The last thing I want to talk to you about is... An Italy trip coming up this fall. I'll be going on a trip 
the, the chaplain of our trip is Father Albert Calio. He is a traditional Catholic Dominican priest, last of the Mohicans in many ways, wonderful theologian and excellent uh, priest. Very pleasure, very, very pleased to have him, very lucky to have him. We'll be looking through the wonderful sights of the Amalfi Coast in Rome and Florence and Assisi, and here's a quick explanation of that trip. With all the trouble in Rome, it is easy to forget about one unshakable fact. Our church is the Roman Catholic Church, and Rome is the Eternal City. What a perfect time to go on a pilgrimage to the Eternal City and the other monumental sites of Catholic heritage in beautiful Italy. Join Father Albert Calio and me this November as we tour through the shrines of Italy and the Amalfi Coast as we attend daily Mass in the Old Rite in the footsteps of St. Peter and St. Francis. Click the link in the description to register for this once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to discover the heart of the Catholic faith in the heart of the old Roman Empire. Click the link in the description area of this podcast, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on one of the platforms such as Spotify or iTunes. All right. What is communicatio in sacris? Well, I'm going to pull an article up here that's going to explain it for us. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here is an article by Father Thomas Crean, traditional Catholic Dominican priest from England. Wonderful theologian. Um, in any case, it's called Praying with Non-Catholics. Is it possible? We're not going to read the whole thing as it is quite lengthy. Uh, you can see we could keep scrolling down. I mean, it'd probably take us 20 minutes or so. Nothing wrong with that. I'd recommend the article. Look it up. But we're going to go through sort of the heart of the matter at the beginning, sort of beginning and middle of the article. And um, we'll just jump to where it says communicatio in sacris. And this article, as I said, is long and it does get into sort of what does it mean with this traditional understanding of communicatio and sacris with the sort of change in persuasion with uh, some stuff coming out of Vatican II? That's not our focus here. That's another topic for another day. Okay. So communicatio and sacris. The traditional teaching of Catholic theology on whether Catholics may participate in non-religious services is summed up by St. Alphonsus Liguori in his Theolo Theologia Moralis. This doctor of the church writes, it is not permitted to be present at the sacred rites of infidels and heretics in such a way that you would be judged to be in communion with them. Now that is a banger of a statement. If you're asking a, fa a fake priest for a blessing, does that look like you are looking like you are in communion with them? I don't know. Judge for yourself. The reason for this teaching is clear. Religious commitments are naturally manifested by outward acts, and to perform an outward act expressive of a false religious commitment is a sin against the true faith. So if you were the Pope, you asked for a blessing from a fake priest, bowed your head, then he gave it to you. Do you think that that would be an outward act expressive of a false religious commitment and a sin against the true faith? Judge for yourself. This is true even if the man in question retains the true faith in his heart. So you can't use that Jesuitical trick. No Talmudic logic here, my friends. So to take the classic example, Christians in the Roman Empire realized that they must not throw incense before a statue of the emperor, even if they had no belief at all in his divinity. For the act was of itself, in their context, expressive of such a belief, and hence sinful. This teaching does not, apply, does not imply that the simple presence of a Catholic at a non-Catholic religious service is a sin. Of course. Thus, moral theologians prior to Vatican II following the lead of St. Alphonsus acknowledge that there may be a good reason for a Catholic to attend such a service as when friendship leads one to attend a non-Catholic wedding. This is called by some theologians passive communicatio in sacris. It is active participation in a non-Catholic religious service which is forbidden by the traditional teaching on communicatio 
in Sacris. For example, joining in with the Psalms and hymns and the course of the Lutheran Eucharist. The following examples may serve to show the unanimity of preconciliar theologians on this point. Now, um, let's just break this down for a second. It's not, it's not uh, defined, necessarily speaking, what constitutes um, the type of service that must take place. Because I understand some of the objections to this are going to be, well, Pope Francis didn't go to a Lutheran event and pray along. Well, no, but he has, and John Paul II did, take part in ecumenical events. And we're going to get to some John Paul II stuff a little bit later on just to show you this is not a new thing. Nonetheless... What has happened is a fake priest performed a fake ritual on the real Pope. I know the Sadies are going to be so mad at me now, and the Benny Planis guys, interaneumness, etc. Um, and it was obvious, it was clearly what was happening, and it's an abomination. That's, there's no way to put it. There's no other way to put it. Let's go back to this article. Father Drummer OP, so... Dominican, writing in 1910, affirms in his Manuale Theologiae uh, Moralis that it is never licit for a Catholic to take part in a non-Catholic cult with the intention of worshipping God in the manner of non-Catholics. More acatholicorum. There you go. Such an act, he declares, is nothing other than a denial of the Catholic faith. In the same year, writing an article on heresy for the Catholic Encyclopedia, Father J. Wilhelm S.J., back when the Jesuits were good, affirms that a Catholic may attend non-Catholic services, but only provided no active part be taken in them. Ask yourselves a question. Does it look to you like Pope Francis, with receiving this blessing, which we can assume is not against his will. I mean, he's the Pope, for goodness sake. He's in the Vatican. It's not like he doesn't have Swiss guards around that could take a guy out trying to force a blessing on him. Does it seem to you like Pope Francis intended to take part in some sort of ritualistic prayer with a fake priest where they were worshiping God? Well, some will say no, because they'll say, well, it wasn't a service of adoration or whatever. However, if someone says, I bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, you're invoking the name of God as a way of imparting blessing as a priest that isn't real onto a pope. This is pretty grave. Furthermore, as we said, you can attend non-Catholic services, but only provided no active part be taken in them. Well, this looks like a pretty active part. Let's continue. In an article on the same subject, the Dictionnaire de Théologie Catholique, which is probably one of the best, it's probably the best Catholic dictionary. It's a shame it's not really in English as far as I can tell. Maybe it is somewhere, but I haven't found it. In 1920, that active participation in non-Catholic rites is toujours interdit. means always forbidden. The reason being that it is equivalent to a denial of the Catholic faith. In 1930, Father B. Uh, Merkelbach, another Dominican, in his Summa Theologia Morales, Morales, writes that active participation in the sacred things of a non-Catholic public cult is illicit. So 
this is a more broad definition, which would include what Pope Francis did, since it implies approval of the worship and a recognition of the sect. So it's participation in the sacred things of a public cult. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, a blessing is a sacred thing. Pretty simple. Using a slightly different terminology, but teaching the same doctrine, Father Alpha Fanfani, another Dominican, 1950, wrote, uh, wrote material communicatio in sacris, material in the sense that the person in question does not mean to renounce his Catholic faith, if it is active and immediate, is never permissible for Catholics. The reason for this, he explains, is that such behavior necessarily manifests a commitment to a heretical or at least an illegitimate cultus. So we could keep going with this. We could keep going with this, but I think you get the point. Pope Francis, intentionally, we can only judge by the actions of being in your house, being in your home, having authority over that thing, bowing your head for a blessing from a fake priest. That doesn't happen by accident. So if we go back to that article, very simple, very simple, right here where I've just highlighted. In the sense that the person in question does not mean to renounce his Catholic, if it is active and immediate, is never permissible for Catholics. So it is never permissible to take part in the actively participate in the sacred things of a heretical sect. I don't know how you're going to get around this, you Pope Splainers. Whether or not you believe that he's committed a grave mortal sin, that's not for me to decide, but we're just reading the stuff here. However, the money line, if we look back at this, is it says the reason for this is that such behavior necessarily manifests a commitment to a heretical or at least an illegitimate cultus. So what is the impression going to be from this event? It's going to be that Pope Francis approves of the Anglican orders because you don't ask for a blessing from the megachurch pastor. The megachurch pastor doesn't, doesn't pretend to have the power of blessing. But the point is, the Anglican fake bishop... He has the same amount of powers as the megachurch pastor who tells you that God wants to get you a Mercedes. A Mercedes. They're the same. They're both not real pastors. They're heretics. And they're bound for hell. And I'm going to do a show on No Salvation Outside the Church. I did the three-hour podcast on that, and it's been well-received, but people have short attention spans. So I'm going to sort of go through some of the money lines from that one at some point in the near future. In any case... This is nothing new. This is nothing new. We're going to read something here about John Paul II. So I picked this. Uh, this uh, one here. Because it's a very pro John Paul II website. It's not anti. You can't accuse me of throwing rocks. And it's uh, on papal ecumenism. Um, anyway, there's a preamble, blah, blah, blah. It says, and I'll make this a little bit bigger here for you. It says, the long pontificate of John Paul II was filled with ecumenical encounters and profound gestures of love and dialogue. Oh, so wonderful. 
This first entry covering his extraordinarily long reign will cover roughly the first 10 years of the reign with the second covering the following 17. So you have to have two long articles because there's just so much ecumenism going on. Amazing. Here's John Paul II in Germany. From November 15th to 19th, 1980, the Pope made a trip to West Germany. Blah, 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 blah. Um, eventually, it was decided that it would have an ecumenical focus. The West German Bishops' Conference apologized uh, for the pamphlets, I think referring to the Lutheran pamphlets, and John Paul met with the leaders of the Lutheran churches. I'm not actually sure what that means. Thanks, thanking them for the hospi hospitality shown toward the Roman Catholics in areas where there are minorities in Mainz. He spoke of himself a pilgrim to the leaders of the Lutheran churches. The Pope also met with leaders who spoke frankly about such divisive issues as mixed marriages, the ban on Protestants receiving communion at a Roman Catholic Mass, and the Roman Catholic ban on ecumenical Sunday services. The meetings were understood to be mainly symbolic, etc., etc., etc. However, right here, some years later, the tone was markedly different. On May 3rd, 1987, at a Mass in Augsburg, Germany, he stated, we can actually click the link there for that. Anyway, it's here in the New York Times, just so you can see I'm not making it up. Wasn't it perhaps even necessary, we might ask here in Augsburg, in accordance with God's unfathomable wisdom for religious schisms and religious wars to occur in order to lead the church to reflect on and review its original values? Now that, my friends, that is an astounding statement. That is on the par with Pope Francis as, you know, God wills the diversity of all religions. You could say that's passive. You could say what he means there is something like God allowed this thing to happen. Okay. But if you mean it, anyway, if you mean it in a positive sense, that's really egregious. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, why does anyone try to use John Paul II as a way of arguing against the Society of St. Pius X. JP II didn't care if you were Catholic. Like, let's look at his, like, honestly, look at his words. So stupid. Anyway, the next day, he went on to celebrate an ecumenical service. The link is there as well. You see that there. This is from 1987. In the Augsburg Cathedral, with bishops from the Lutheran Church in Germany. Isn't that fun? His ecumenical relations with the Lutherans extended to Rome, where on December 11th, 1983, he took part in an ecumenical celebration marking the 500th anniversary of Luther's birth. Why would you ever celebrate that? Anyway, um, at the, uh, my German's going to be bad here, Christuskirche. Not so bad. I don't know. Maybe that was okay. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in Rome, where he delivered a homily. Delivered a homily. Amazing. I wonder, I wonder, ladies and gentlemen, if we were to go back to our article here, I wonder if that would look like active participation in the sacred things of non-Catholics. Do you think a Pope preaching during a service in a Lutheran church counts as that? Call me crazy. It might fit the definition. In his 1982 pastoral visit, the first of a Pope to the United Kingdom oriented toward the Roman Catholic population, but ecumenism was a key focus. Uh, the Pope was greeted not only by the Roman Catholic prelates, but also by the Anglicans. Um, blah, 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 blah. The second day of his visit was focused of, on Canterbury and the ecumenical relationship between the two churches, highlighted by a prayer service. 
John Paul and the Archbishop of Canterbury, the most Reverend Robert Nunsi, processed in jointly. So they came into the service together. I wonder if that fits the definition. Maybe. Anyway, at a certain point, you can see the picture here. And I'll highlight this uh, area so you see what I'm looking at. It says, after jointly professing their shared baptismal faith and praying at the spot where Thomas Beckett was martyred. That's weird, eh? Anglicans praying at the spot where they murdered a saint. Very strange. The liturgy proceeded and the Pope preached a homily based on the call to communion, based on the love of Christ. The service marked the issuing of a common declaration, etc., etc., etc. Then, they forgot the Y on the end of they there. They jointly gave a benediction. There they are there. Isn't that wonderful? Anyway, this sort of thing has been happening for a long time, my friends. Pope Francis is just the culmination of these things. I mean, John Paul II was preaching in the... And people... No, here's what's the... People will say this. Well, you know, St. Paul went into the synagogues, don't you know? Don't you know, you stupid trad? St. Paul went to the synagogues and he preached to the Jews. Are you saying St. Paul was accused, was, was, should be accused of a sin? Well, first of all, the synagogues, which belonged to the Jews, were valid in the old covenant and the covenant had been revoked. Therefore, the apostles of the new covenant had every right to go in because they were theirs. And when he went in, he preached conversion and told them they'd be lost forever if they didn't convert. Very different than a pope going into a heretical sect, which has no historical right to anything, can point to no covenant, even one that was just, you know, we're talking about the 20 years after the death of Christ. It's kind of a crazy time, I'd think. This isn't the same thing. And uh, that's not, it's just not the same thing. You don't go into an, a Lutheran service and preach about the oneness of love of Christ. If these guys were actually to act like St. Paul, they'd be willing to say something they'd get stoned to death for, which is what St. Paul would preach, and all the other apostles as well. In any event, I'm not going to say one way or the other. If a Pope Francis did is, you know, something he's going to have to bring up to his confessor, I don't know. It's up to him. But if I read the traditional theology on it, a.k.a. the Catholic theology, and I look at what happened, it's pretty clear what happened, isn't it? And it's been happening for a long time. And it didn't start with John Paul II. Or it didn't start with Pope Francis, but goes back to John Paul II. Probably Paul VI. I don't know. I had to look into it. But I just knew of John Paul II. As always, ladies and gentlemen, let me know what you think of the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.